0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're pleased to have Colin Grant on the show. His book, Negro with a Hat The Rise and Fall of Marcus Garvey, has just appeared from Oxford University Press. I've just finished the book, and I have to tell you, it's a terrific read. Colin has a way with words. At points, the book is very funny. And at other moments, it's quite sad. And Garvey is certainly a very colorful figure, and the material is wonderfully handled. I enjoyed talking with Colin very much, and I hope that you enjoy listening to the interview. Here it is.
1: Hi, Colin. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm in a very good mood today. Thanks. How are you? That's uh, really good. I've where had a very fine day. Where um, are you? Where it's going to exactly. get better.
0: Yeah, I hope it gets better. Where, where, where are you exactly?
1: I live by the coast, in the south coast of England, in a Place called Brighton, Brighton. Which yes, is about um, 50, 60 miles from London.
0: That's terrific. No, we—I uh, don't know if you've been following the news or whether this makes the news—but we here in the center of the United States are um, experiencing a kind of biblical flood. <laughs> we wow. are, we are, yes, we are going to float away. I'm building an ark for myself, my family, and all of our um, animals. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we're happy to have Colin Grant on the show today, and uh, his. New book, Negro with a Hat, and I'll have to ask you about that title. The Rise and Fall of Marcus Garvey has just come out from Oxford University Press. Um, I will tip my hand and tell you that I absolutely love this book. I thought it was terrific, Um, and I just want to congratulate Colin, first of all, on writing it because um, I I just think it's a terrific piece of work. But but no more massaging for now. Let me uh, begin by just asking you a little bit uh, or to talk a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and where you went to school and so on and so forth.
1: I grew up in a little town in southern England called Luton. Uh, my parents are Jamaican, Jamaican. they migrated to England in the late 1950s, early 60s. Uh, and my parents were enamored of America. I think the first idea was to migrate to America, but they couldn't manage to do that. Mm-hmm. So they came to England, but they infected all of their children with this idea of America, this great love for America, mm-hmm. so much so that... Um, When it came to my education, senior school, I was sent to an American school in a little town called St. Albans.
2: Mm -hmm. It was
1: a school run by American monks, the Mm -hmm. Brothers of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and it's called St. Columbus College, Mm -hmm. uh, where I did not excel in literature. I excelled at basketball, although I have the I have yet to go one on one with a future president yes. of America.
0: <laughs> You're embarrassing me, <laughs> but we'll have to play sometime.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I can take it to the hoop.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. That's great. Uh,
1: uh, but yeah, I, I so I, I was educated by these American Catholics at uh, a Catholic school in, in Southern England, and I subsequently went on to study medicine for a few years before. Um, seeing that that was not the future for me, and I always had this love of writing. I was really in love with my uncle, who was this great writer, I, and I wanted to be him. So all through my latter teens and early adult life, uh-huh. I wanted to emulate my uh, uncle Vivian Wellington-Adams. That's a great uh, name. Junior. Yeah. Uh, yes, he's a great writer, and so everything I've done subsequently has been, in, in a way, to honor him and to really? impress him, That's terrific. which includes this new book um, on Marcus Garvey. That's terrific.
0: So um, then tell us how you, uh, I guess I understand how you became interested in Garvey, but tell us how you came to write the book.
1: Well, I, I'm a radio producer. Uh, I work for BBC Radio. I have done for the last 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. And about five or six years ago, I was given an opportunity to go to Jamaica with my mother. My mother a Jamaican, had not been back to Jamaica in the 40-odd years since she migrated really? to England.
0: Wow, there's a story yeah. in
1: Well, like a lot of migrants, she came to this country with an idea that she'd maybe stay in five years, earn some money, and go back. But yeah. so five years became 10, and 10 became 15, and before, you know, we're changing the wallpaper.
3: <laughs>
1: and so she never went back. And the longer she stayed out, the more difficult it was to go back. Uh-huh. But I convinced her, after 40-odd years, to go back. Uh-huh. And we went to Kingston, Jamaica, Uh uh, where Garvey was very prominent in his early youth. And I learned that my mother had lived on a road called Jakes Road, which is named after the Jakes family. And Amy Jakes was a woman who married Marcus Garvey, became his second wife. Uh Uh, And everywhere. We went because my mother's father was a policeman in the 1940s in Jamaica, and he was stationed around many parts of Kingston. It was a difficult time to be a black policeman. So when the heat became too hot, he moved around. So we got to see quite a lot of Kingston. And everywhere you went, especially in the ghettos of Kingston, in Jonestown and Trenchtown mm-hmm. and Tivoli Gardens, on the walls of those ghettos, you would see graffiti. And the graffiti was of the chubby face of Marcus Mazaya Garvey. Mm-hmm. I was struck by the idea that here was a man who was very much alive to Jamaicans, but he was rather unknown and eclipsed back in the United Kingdom. And the more I started to think about Garvey, the more I realized that he was a man who had a very troubled past. And also in my uh, early life, uh, I suppose, Marshall, um, he was a character that perhaps one felt a little bit embarrassed about.
0: Yeah, no, I, uh, I I know just what you mean. We'll talk about that more later, but go ahead.
1: Yeah. So uh it occurred to me uh, subsequent to that that this is a man who had a very rich uh life and particularly talking to my mother and, and getting some of the personal history, my mother can sing the old U N I A song. Really? The Universal Negro Improvement Association song yeah. um where they honour Marcus Garvey. Uh-huh. Um, where they sing about the fact that he's going to lead 400 million Negroes to a new African empire.
3: Uh-huh.
1: And when she talked about the people that she knew who had been inspired by Garvey, I suddenly became inspired to write a book about Garvey. Uh-huh. I hadn't I hadn't written a book before, uh, but I had an agent who uh, had been looking at my fiction with not much great reverence, but when I post the—that's <laughs> <laughs> what
0: agents are for, I think. Right? <laughs> when I
1: when I when I wrote this small proposal for a biography of Marcus Garvey, he sat up and thought it was a wonderful story because it's such a dramatic story. It is. And the more I looked around it, the more I realized there had been books written on Garvey, but I think they missed a the trick uh-huh. because he was this huge man with a huge personality with all these wonderful theatrical characters around him. And he had a kind of Shakespearean life. And there was great dramas, there was great tragedies, there was murders,
2: mm-hmm. there was
1: many wives, there were coups, mm-hmm. there were betrayals. Uh, there was a great rise and a great fall and there were thousands, if not millions of followers. And I was determined thereafter to write a book on him. But equally I was determined to write a book on him, but. Um, fleshed out the human being, because some of the uh, books I'd read about Garvey were rather dry um, and, forgive me, rather boring
2: Mm -hmm. books,
1: uh, which uh, one would have difficulty unless one was wedded to the idea of wading through them Objectively reading them. Yeah, so my... I was determined to write a book that uh, that scholars would find um, rigorous, but also that a lay person, a punter, would find exciting.
0: Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. Those boring books were probably written by some of my colleagues. God, <laughs> sorry, don't don't tell them I said this. I guess it's hilarious, but yeah, I've written I've written such boring books myself. So I've taken some incredibly fascinating topics and just made oatmeal out of them.
1: It's really quite, truly just. <laughs> well, it'd be, it would be difficult to make oatmeal out of. <laughs> no, garbage.
0: I agree. It's funny because it's uh, it's, it's, it kind of reminds me of a story. I had a, I had, a, um, I had a teacher in college who taught Russian literature, and we read uh, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Chekhov mm-hmm. and things like this. And at the end of the uh, course, um, he handed out evaluations, and people would evaluate the class. And he got one of them back, and he read it to us. And he said, um, some student had said, the class was terrific, but with material like this, who could miss
3: <laughs> okay. It
0: is true that Garvey is an absolutely, it's a truly ast- an astounding figure. And I, like I would like to go back just for a second because the 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 point that you made about him being something of an embarrassment, um, um, I, I think is is quite apt. Because I know that while I'm not a specialist in African American history or African history, I know that I was I was given to understand by my right thinking friends mm-hmm. that he was really something there was something untoward about him um, and mm-hmm. he wasn't really to be spoken of in the same breath as let's say Du Bois who yeah. everyone the has incredible reverence for in their, their institutes and scholars spend their whole lives you know finding out what Du Bois read you know what, what he read in the morning and he ate for breakfast and you know so yeah. on and so forth whereas Garvey you know he, he really is he really is uh, he's someone who's been kind of excluded from From the history of the, I guess I would call it the broader civil rights movement.
1: I agree, and I was at pains to put that right. When I sat down to write the book, there were two huge books I had in front of me. There were the two-part biography of W.E.B. Du Bois Mm -hmm. uh, by David Levering Lewis, Mm -hmm. the um, double Pulitzer Prize winner. And I thought, my God, this, these are fantastic books. Garvey deserves the same kind of treatment. Now, I haven't written a two-part biography with a wind. But that was my ambition. Thank goodness. Because I, like you, I think he has been slightly written out of the story. No, he has I think been. what happened was um, the story of Marcus Garvey, I think, after he died, was written from the perspective of his enemies.
0: Yo, yeah, definitely.
1: And they had triumphed. And he had failed. No, that's right. And they, I think, poured scorn upon his head. And those people, like myself, who came to read Garvey, came to think of him as a kind of skeleton in the closet. Yeah. Uh, The embarrassing skeleton in the closet, relative to someone like Du Bois, this great militant scholar, Mm -hmm. great noble man with a great noble head. Garvey was something of a buffoon.
2: Yeah, no,
1: that's right. And even though I've now... admire him and think of him as a very sincere man it was difficult even for myself to unpick some of those disparaging thoughts that had clung to him like barnacles yeah, over the years
0: that's a nice metaphor and it's funny because there's just a du Bois industry now i don't i can't speak about the uk but in the united states there's just an industry of of people mm-hmm. that, that basically spend their entire careers writing and talking and and and, and sort of pitching du Bois. whereas garvey is complete there are no marcus garvey Centers, as far as I can tell, at any institutions of higher learning in the United States. But there may right. might well be. I, it's 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 just I thought it was fascinating in that way. Um, so why don't we begin? You know, I think people like. To, why don't we begin at the beginning? You know, and you could just tell us a little bit about. You know, just tell us Marcus Garvey's life. Why don't we begin, you know, where was he born? To whom and and uh sure and well and in my memory.
1: book marshall what, what i do is to start at the end actually yes, and in a do. way i think that's rather intriguing for readers because in a, in a kind of way i imagine it as kind of film mm-hmm. and a great hollywood film if there are any hollywood producers out there <laughs>
0: listening, pay attention so i want to it,
1: cut a a a, nine...
0: a, i want a percentage <laughs> if you get a film country.
1: <laughs> okay you get your cut mm-hmm. uh, but in 1940 marshall Marcus Garvey is in London. He's alone now. He's a beaten man. His movement has failed. His wife has been to England with the two boys, the two children that they have in the 1930s, late nineteen mm-hmm. thirties, 1937, but she's rather fed up with them as she leaves and she takes the children with her. And by and large, his movement has failed. The millions of followers have dwindled to very little numbers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He has a secretary and one or two members of an entourage in a small, damp, rented house in West London. Mm
2: -hmm. And in the
1: beginning of the year 1940, Marcus Garvey has a stroke. And he's recovering from that stroke a few months later, in May 1940, when his secretary brings him a newspaper. And he sits down and opens the paper, and he reads a headline, which he knows cannot be true. (laughs) The headline is, Marcus Garvey dies in London. And it's not a kind obituary, it's a nasty obituary, it's a yeah. caustic obituary.
0: Yeah.
1: And subsequent to that, other papers pick up on the story and equally publish obituaries. And again, the same, more of the same kind of thing. Garvey was a fool, he was a buffoon, yeah. he was a charlatan, he was mm-hmm. a disgrace to the race.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And after reading so many of these obituaries, even though the secretary tries to hide some of the more harsh one from him. Marcus Garvey suffers a second heart attack and dies. Mm. His obituaries kill him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought that was a great opening in a way, and then I track back to the beginning.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Because although it's a poignant end, it's the end of a rather remarkable life, because he started off in penury, mm-hmm. uh, uh, not quite on a dirt floor in a cabin like Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. but close to it. Mm-hmm. And yet, he rose. Remarkably, um, to the heights at his greatest peak when he commanded, if not millions, then hundreds of thousands of followers. Mm -hmm. And so the books then... Starts with really with some of his uh, early childhood in Jamaica,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because many of the books I've read on Garvey kind of skip that. Right. They kind of skip to to his most famous period in America. Right. But he started off in Jamaica, where he was born in 1887 mm-hmm. in Banants Bay, a small town on the north coast of Jamaica. Right. And his father was a stonemason, and his mother planted crops. She grew pimento and coffee.
3: Hmm.
1: Uh, but he was blessed, I think with a father who was also a kind of local scholar. And unusually for a man of his standing at that time in Jamaica, he had his own little library, he collected books, mm-hmm. uh, Garvey Senior. This is a time in Jamaica at the beginning of the 20th century where the population was about 1 million, mm-hmm. thereabouts. The majority, 800 and odd thousand of them were black. There so were about 15,000 brown-skinned people and 5,000 white people. And the brown-skinned people and the white people were the elite, and they ran the show Mm -hmm. by and large. Mm -hmm. There was no university there. Mm -hmm. For someone like Garvey, there was no great opportunity. He was a man with no great expectations. And yet, at an early age, he seemed to be fueled with this idea of improvement.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So he improved himself by stealing into his father's library and reading all the books therein. Mm -hmm. He also had this um, other tweet idea of, and I'm sure some children still have it, of leafing through the dictionary and picking up one or two words a day,
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: writing them down over the paper, put them in their pocket, bring them out when they have a conversation, or try to include them in a sentence or even a, a story. So he improved himself. I mean, I, in the end, he led the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Yes,
0: exactly.
2: But his
1: improvement started with himself, and I was yeah. rather touched by that. I'd rather touched also by the story I learned fairly early on, that he as a country boy had a country accent
3: mm-hmm. and
1: one way to excel to get on in the Caribbean and in many parts of the world is to standardize your accent. Yeah. So when he came to Kingston, the capital in around 1905, one of the things he did was take elocution lessons
2: mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. with a
1: man called Robert Love,
0: yeah.
2: who
1: was a great scholar himself and uh-huh. ran a paper called the Jamaican Advocate, uh-huh. but also he had a fiery tongue. he said he had a tongue like a tomahawk. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but one of the things I love about Garvey is that he's a man of great contradictions and, um, infin- in a way, an unreliable witness, even to his own story. Uh-huh. So he says he took um, elocution lessons from this man, Robert Love. But at the time he would have taken elocution lessons, Robert Love himself had suffered a stroke yeah, sorry. and was hardly in a position to yeah. um, pronounce... Clearly and elucidate words in a way that would be beneficial to someone who wanted to improve their diction. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he did take elocution lessons, and so wedded was he to the idea of improvement that he would enter statewide elocution competition. That's right, yeah. And at one stage, uh, around about 1910, I believe, he um, entered this competition thinking he'd probably come first because he'd uh, brushed up on his speech. Um, but at the time when he stood on the stage, he was heckled and jeered yeah. and stumbled and came third. And so incensed and outraged was he by what had happened by this great transgression that he sued the heckler and won.
2: Yeah, that's right. And yeah, right.
1: um, this is the thing also, this idea of resolving conflicts with the law is something that you see in garbage life again and again. It's had a very strange relationship with the law, rather like a lot of Caribbean people, especially Jamaican people actually, they don't tend to resolve conflicts locally, they go straight to litigation. Mm -hmm. And that idea uh, of litigation is something that I use as a motif throughout the book. So, there's another moment in his life when he's a younger boy, actually of about eight, when um, and this is something I wanted to bring across, he was a rascal as a young boy, like many young boys. He um, ran with the the posse. Mm-hmm. And in the kind of slow town of St. Anne's Bay, there was nothing much to do other than to stone churches, which is what <laughs> he did once came. He stoned the church and broke all the glass windows of this Wesleyan church and before the courts. Yeah. And found guilty by the judge. And the judge said to his father, well, Mr. Garvey, we can either send him to reform school or you can pay a one pound fine, which is about $2 in those days. Uh-huh. And Garvey's father said, send him to reform school. Ouch. The boy was saved by his mother, a rather kindly Sarah, who passed the hat round and found enough money to keep him from jail. Uh But that was the kind of uh, upbringing he had. He had a rather austere father who um, was rather absent, rather um, given towards books and locking himself away, which is something that Garvey kind of replicated later on in life. Mm-hmm. But a rather kindly mother, whom he adored, I think, mm-hmm. and he had very kind words to say about her.
0: Is there, is there, I was going to ask you, is there any way to explain, with reference to his biography, what appears to have been a kind of native or intrinsic ambition in him as a young man? I mean, one has to imagine that his classmates that his mates, the people around him, did not think that they were going to save the Negro race. Yeah. Yet, yet he very early on has this notion that he is a person of destiny, and he's destined for great things. Is there
1: any way to explain that? Um, Marcus, I'm sure you you know as well as I do, but sometimes Things cannot be explained. Yeah, I was going to
0: say that. It's kind of a rhetorical question, to be quite honest with you, Colin, because
1: Because I look at his background,
0: and I can't find anything in it that would predict this.
1: No, there is nothing there. (laughs) But he has this titanic ambition. Yeah. And rather like many geniuses, and he was a genius, he has this uh, titanic vision of his place in the world. And I don't know where it comes from, because there's nothing in his background to give him that idea. Yeah. His sense of importance. But somehow... It's there, maybe in his DNA. Because yeah, sometimes I think that we are born with our forebear's ambition.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So maybe some relative in the dim and distant past passed on some DNA that worked its way through to Marcus Garvey. It's funny. Because there's nothing intermediate to background, which would suggest the man that he became.
0: Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I always, I, I always, especially my students have a tendency to think, for whatever reason, I think it's sort of latent Marxism or something, that people are always products of their environments. And, yeah. and, and I always think, no, they're not. <laughs> not yeah. really. Yeah. No, they're not at all. You just have to look around a little bit and you'll see that they really aren't. That there is
1: some... No, I, I, I agree with that. So, yeah, uh, when, really... when I present, just to digress slightly, when I received the first copy of my book um, just before Christmas last year, I took it around to my mother, and she was rather tearful and uh, was rather proud, I think. And I was saying to her, "Mum, you know, this is just a book. And she said, no, no, this is history. And what she meant was that there'd be nobody in our family that had done anything like that. There'd be nobody who'd written a book. There was no one who had left a trace in the sand. Yeah. Uh, like this book hopefully will do. Yeah. And equally, Garvey, there was nothing in his background yeah, that, all. that would give you any indication that this is a man who's going to leave a huge imprint on the minds of many, many people it's down the years. It's just absolutely remarkable.
0: really is. So he, if I recall correctly, a, a, he's apprenticed to um, a printer who mm-hmm. to, to whom he's related, but I don't remember who it was.
1: Yeah. He's, a, he's, a, um, he's apprenticed to a man who's like a godfather to him. Uh-huh. And he learns um, the craft of printing. Yeah. And um, this is a man that he writes to um, when he does leave the island, because he leaves the island around about 1912 to go to England. Right. After he's been to some parts of um, Central America. Uh Um, But he has a kind of correspondence with this man who becomes a kind of father figure for him in the absence of uh, a caring father Mm -hmm. of his own. Mm -hmm. And one of the things uh, that I loved was discovering some... Letters, which contradicts some of the ideas that people have, these sort of shorthand ideas that people have about Garvey being, for example, this great separatist, mm-hmm. this great black separatist. He may have become one, but he wasn't <laughs> one initially, because I came across a, a letter which he writes back to this man, Alpha Cap, where he says, um, when he's in London, and he's going on a kind of mini tour, a mini grand tour of Europe, which is what um, Victorian middle-class people did. It wasn't middle-class by the stretch of the imagination, but he managed to have a mini tour. And he says uh, in this letter, wouldn't it be amazing if I came back to Jamaica with an heiress (laughs) on my arm (laughs) and lo and behold, Marshall, a few months later, he writes back to say, who would have thought? (laughs) You're gone. I'm engaged to a Spanish Irish heiress. Right, yeah, no. I, a white yeah. woman, I would presume. I told you, um, there,
0: there were several times when I was reading your book that I almost fell out of bed, and that was one of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and he, he says to um, his um, mentor, Well, I'm in love with her, she's in love with me, and even though it rather goes against my principles, I think I'm going to have to go ahead for the marriage. Yeah. Um, and I, when I tell that to some. Black people, especially in England, who are great Garveyites, they kind of refuse to believe it, actually. Because it it so goes against the grain of what they understand the man to be. But this is what I love about Garvey. He's full of contradictions. And there may be a great political idea that we may espouse, but when it comes to our own uh, selves, our own personal selves, sometimes those ideas don't hold. And Uh they certainly didn't hold for him at that time. Uh, in 1912 in London, he then subsequently meets uh, a black Jamaican woman, yep. and he uh, breaks off the engagement to the white Spanish Irish heiress.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean you mentioned um, you mentioned these images people have. I mean I know that in my own work and in talking to people, that I found one of the hardest things to do is to encourage people or to get people to part company with their cherished notions. Yeah, it's almost impossible. Once these things get some currency, and people you know feel they have some sort of purchase on them, then it's very difficult to disabuse them of these things. And I bet Garvey's life is just full of them, just just absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But kind of clear to me that he polarized opinion. Yeah, and I was also keen to disabuse some of his detractors from some of their fast and strongly held, um, rather um, abusive opinions of Garvey. Because, as the title suggests, he was considered to be a buffoon. Yeah, he was, Uh, yeah. And that that title was a paraphrase of um, what Du Du Bois said of Garvey. Du Bois called him a little fat black man, ugly, but with intelligent eyes, a big head, seated on a pink platform, on a pink throne. And uh, later on... um, uh, I'm sorry to skip ahead, but later on, when there's this great Garvey Must Go campaign amongst the brown elite in America, a man called Robert Bagnall says of Garvey, he was a, a Negro of unmixed stock, squat, fats, with protruding jaws, bright pig-like eyes, and a bulldog face. Yeah. And, and these are really nasty, vicious, horrible um, things said about Garvey. Yeah. And they they came about, I think, because people were, were very much intimidated and frightened of Carthy, Yeah. especially the likes of Du Bois and the leadership of the NAACP,
2: yeah.
1: uh, because they, I think, <laughs> felt that, <laughs> that he was going to spoil things rather for him. They, <laughs> well, they, <laughs> they thought they had the field to themselves, and along comes this bulldozer,
2: right. and
1: he uh, can speak to people in a way which the rather cold, austere, snooty Du Bois couldn't. Yeah.
0: Right. No, Uh, I'm sorry to laugh, but I was you reminded me of one of the other great anecdotes in the book, and the book is full of terrific anecdotes. And one is of Garvey first going to the NAACP offices and thinking mm -hmm. he's in the wrong place because there are no black people there.
1: (laughs) Another moment, uh,
3: which
1: I have to to redact. But (laughs) again, you see, I I would, I would, I would would slightly um, (laughs) urge caution there because Garvey was a great man for writing his story retrospectively in a way that portrayed. Him in a favourable light, yeah, um, still and I'm, I'm not sure he actually felt that, although yeah. he did write that, <laughs> but one of the well, one of the problems I think he had later on with Du Bois was that they never met. I mean, they met briefly in Jamaica when Du Bois went to Jamaica in 1914 and was shown the great representative men and they stood in a, a long line uh-huh. and uh, Garvey was in that line in this garden party waiting to shake his hand mm-hmm. but other than that Du Bois is um, on um, 70th street um, uh, and Garvey was up in Harlem on 135th street mm-hmm. um, and there's a seminal moment later on in 1924, uh, and I write about it in my book, in in a chapter called uh, Not to Mention His Colour, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: where Du Bois is uh, in a hotel in Cincinnati with a friend, and they're going to go up in the elevator, in the lift, to the restaurant. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And they're waiting, and the the lift comes down, and the doors open And it's told from the perspective of his friend, Du Bois' yeah. friend. Uh-huh. And he says, "Ye gods, um, a, a man in fantastic military, Victorian regalia, and a plumed helmet, steps out. Ye gods, it was Garvey, surrounded by a phalanx of beautiful black ladies.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And the two black leaders, Du Bois and Garvey, they looked at each other, their nostrils flared, their chins jutted out, they walked past each other, pretending not to see each other. Uh-huh. Um, Garvey... Uh, left the lift and Du Bois entered the lift, the doors closed and he went up to the restaurant and the next day in the newspapers the Cincinnati Union quoted the headline Du Bois and Garvey meet, no blood is shed (laughs) and uh, that I think quite clearly portrays the difficulty that they had because I think it's very easy to maintain a hatred of somebody in the abstract Mm -hmm. and I think if they had met, if there had been uh, occasions when they would see that they weren't each other's worst enemy, yeah. then they would have achieved much greater things, I believe. Yeah. So that's yeah. one of the kind of the tropes throughout the book, is to sort of portray that great dispute between um, arguably the two greatest back leaders of the time, Du Bois and Garvey.
0: Certainly, and you do a great job of it as well. Um, let's, let's get uh, Garvey to London. Why did he go there?
1: Well, I think he went there because... Again, this is something I'm at pains to point out. Garvey was a great patron. He was a great patron of all things British. He loved the British Empire. He was a great son of empire. And the thing to do when you're a poor colonial uh, in the colonies, in the outpost of civilization, is to get to the center, get Mm -hmm. to the heart of civilization. Mm -hmm. And so it was the ambition of every bright, ambitious young person to come to London. Mm-hmm. London was this great metropolis.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: Garvey recognized that he could get some kind of schooling there, in mm-hmm. a funny way, because there were great libraries there. Right. And he recognized also that the Houses of Parliament, the Commons, was this wonderful school of orators. Uh-huh. Uh, David Lloyd George and sure. all these wonderful politicians would hold fourth mm-hmm. on the floor of the Houses of the Parliament. Garvey would go along and listen to them speak and mm-hmm. learn from them. So I think he, he went essentially to further his education. Mm-hmm. But also, um, there was nothing but to keep him where he was. You mm-hmm. know, the, his, his, his um, life was rather limited in Jamaica for mm-hmm. someone like Garvey. Mm-hmm. And so he did what many um, young people did. They left. I mean, Jamaica was a place you left. You didn't stay there. And so, for instance, in, in 1911, 10,000 Jamaicans left to go to Central America. Mm-hmm. Very few Jamaicans went to London. Some did. But mostly they were uh, troops who were parts of choruses or choirs um, or performers of some sort. Um, so it's rather unusual that someone like Garvey would go. But when he did get to London, he um, struggled a bit mm-hmm. and worked down at the docks uh, mm-hmm. with uh, seamen, and it must have been rather unnerving for him to arrive and see that there were many black seamen who uh, didn't seem to move from their port. They were waiting for their next berths back to the Caribbean or to Africa, mm-hmm. and it must have been um, rather sobering to realize that they weren't doing very well. Um, and it's a time that, you know, employment wasn't great for the majority of poor working class people, never mind poor working class yeah, black sure. people. But he managed to to land a job as a messenger and a handyman uh, at a, a new newspaper, a new journal called the African Times and in Orange Review. And it came under the tutelage of a man called uh, Jews Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. In a way, it was rather like Garvey. I mean... What I love about Garvey is that he seems to be attracted to and to attract people like himself. That Jus Muhammad Ali was a self-made man. Mm -hmm. He started off as a kind of actor, ran his own theatre company, and then somehow became this um, proprietor of this newspaper uh, uh, to which many, many bright people would write for. Um, Uh And Garvey had his first break writing... um, an essay for this newspaper around about 1913 where he wrote about the the British Empire in the Caribbean. Uh-huh. Um, and he he had enough of uh, an opportunity to work then, and he had enough uh, um, money coming in in order to go off on that little grand tour that I mentioned earlier. Right,
0: exactly, where he meets the heiress and actually becomes Where
1: he meets the heiress, things, yeah, yeah. And, he, and he travels around and he's yeah. uh, impressed. But, uh, but uh, he also goes again and again and again to the British museum where the library, the great British Library, is held in the British Museum and he reads people like Booker T. Washington and he reads people like Edward Wilmot Blyden, this great Liberian scholar Uh who wrote a huge book called um, uh, Islam Christianity and the Negro Race Mm -hmm. Um, and I think adopts some of the ideas of Blyden and Blyden was a very strange and complex man as well and um, he uh, moved from the Caribbean to Liberia um, at a time when the African-American elite ran the show in Liberia, and he hated them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and uh, He was a dark-skinned man. He was a proud black man of unmixed stock, I imagine. Yes. And uh, he famously said uh, towards the end of his life that he wanted one thing written on his gravestone, and that was, I hated mulattoes." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's something of, that Garvey came to. Um, suggest a lot of anger. Who uh, suggest also when he thought of um, Du Bois, I mean he called Du Bois a lazy mulatto. Yeah, exactly. uh, in the end, when they all got rather nasty, and uh, they were kind of wading through a molasses of hate. So, it's, but uh, he, he had a great education. He had a great, you know, not necessarily sentimental, but he had a great education in London, Garvey. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. No, um, it's in London that he starts the uh, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, right?
1: Well, he has the idea there. I think when when he leaves London and he gets on a boat at Southampton on the coast and he's traveling back, he has, in his own words, a kind of epiphany, tossing and turning in his cabin at night. He thinks to himself, well, where is this great African empire? Where's the great black man's army, the great black man's navy, the great black leader? Uh, Yeah. And there wasn't one. and as I said earlier, in this great way that these geniuses who have these titanic ideas, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah.
1: you have this wonderful idea that he will be the head of this great empire.
2: Incredible!
1: And so seven days after landing back in Jamaica, that's when he founds the first
2: oh, okay. Universal
1: you know, Negro Improvement Association, uh-huh. really with just a few friends yeah. and his sister um, and you know, half a dozen supporters. And again, you see the people who support him initially, are white have mm-hmm. I mean, this idea that Garvey um, loathed white people and that he saw no purpose in having any kind of union with them is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because some of his greatest funders mm-hmm. were white people, and he courted them. He courted yeah. um, white patrons. He even courted the governor.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right.
1: And uh, when he founded this movement, at the end of the movement, at the end of each meeting, uh, they would uh, mm. rouse themselves to great songs, singing the British National Anthem. Yeah, that's right. And, and he got into trouble, actually, when they collected funds. Uh, rather than dispensing the funds as he and his colleagues said they would towards the poor, buying them food at Christmas or little presents, he would save all the money and, and spend all the money on expensive telegrams to the king on the yeah. king's birthday. Right. And also sending telegrams to the king um, pledging loyalty to the crown in its great struggle against the Germans in the First World War.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting reflection of his own, I guess, ambition or sense of himself that he was a great one for corresponding with people on top. Yeah, exactly. He never went to the intermediaries. He wrote to <laughs> Booker T. Washington. He wrote to W. Du Bois. He wrote to the king. He wrote to the president. He wasn't going to no. deal with their minions. He was going to talk to them. Because he felt he was one of them, I think.
1: He did. He did. And he he recognized also that, um, in in a funny way, those people lack prejudice. Those people, when they see someone of substance, someone uh, of great ambition, of chutzpah, of drive, Uh they reward them occasionally. So when it comes uh, to New York, one of the people he gets on board is Nicholas Butler,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: who who was running Columbia University at the time. and I think but in, back, back in Jamaica, though, I think what he was doing though, by courting the, the governors and the, the white elite, he was circumventing the people who were going to give him trouble, who right. were the brown elite, mm-hmm. right. who rather resented
2: mm-hmm. Garvey. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, there was this great um, color code in Jamaica as it was in America at the time. You know, This idea, I'm sure you're familiar with that song, There's a Brown Girl in the Ring. mm mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the idea of that song is that the brown girl is the girl that um, is going to get all of the sweetness in life.
2: Yeah, right.
1: And the black girls are the girls holding hands um, in a circle, and they're going to get the sour plum, and the brown girl will get all the sugar. It's funny because uh, in,
0: in the, I, I, you probably know that in the United States, at least among these, sort of, within the white community, even among, I guess I would call, right-thinking people, this is really not very widely known, and I, I know that I first came across it really when I saw a movie by Spike Lee called, I think it was called School Days. Have you ever seen Uh-oh. this film? Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I just had no idea that being, you know, slightly lighter, slightly darker, having kinky hair or having a nose yeah. like this. Or looks like, I just didn't know that this was something that people found significant. But, apparent, you know, as, as you point out well in the book, th- these are incredibly important distinctions.
1: Well, they are because, as I say in the book also, at the time of Garvey's ascendancy in the Caribbean, it was the ambition of every black man to be white.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. If
1: you're yeah. white, you white, you would get on.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly um, right. Yeah,
1: And right. and the brown elite in America, I think, resented Garvey because they said he imported this idea of this great schemata, this great yeah, yeah. color scheme, and he, they said it was a false one. Right. And it wasn't may, maybe as harsh as it was in the Caribbean, uh-huh. but I think that there was a, a color scheme in in. America at that time.
2: Oh, I think there certainly Um, was,
1: yeah. But I think that tactfully, tactfully, they thought thought that it was the wrong thing to highlight because it would give ammunition to the enemy.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. So
1: this great idea of unity would be broken apart if one paid too much attention to the differences between black people. Um, Uh And and I think Garvey only went that that way when he, wrongly, I think, thought that the brown elite were the enemy. Uh I mean, one of the things I'm at pains to point out in the book is that I think that he mistook the enemy. He mistook the enemy for the NAACP and Du Bois and and Bagnell and and Pickens and Asa Philip Randolph, when the real enemy were the people like J. Edgar Hoover, who fairly early on, I think, thought of Garvey as a dangerous element in society, as a a Negro agitator who was going to cement trouble. Mm -hmm. And so early on, um, and I point this out in Negro with a Hat, the FBI, well, at that time it's called the BOI, Bureau of Investigation, Mm -hmm. they infiltrated Garvey's movement. Um, And uh, a lot of the work that I've relied on has has come from other great scholars like um, Theodore Kornwebel, who wrote a wonderful book um, about the the Red Scare, Mm -hmm. um, Seeing Red, he called it. Mm -hmm. And he talks early on about uh, the fact that some of the people that Garvey came to rely on in the top echelons of his movement were actually FBI plants. Yeah. And and those people weren't there to dig up the movement. <laughs> they yeah. were there to do everything they could to undermine the movement.
2: Oh, exactly. And it's
1: rather pitiful, actually, that he, yeah. um, he didn't recognize it. But equally, though, um, Garvey didn't recognize the degree to which the British were petrified of him and the French were petrified of him. Yeah. Because when his ideas started to take root, they were fearful of the fact that if his great ambitious idea to found an African empire in Liberia. If that took hold, then that idea may infect the black Africans in the Mm -hmm. neighboring states of of Liberia, the states of Togo and Sierra Leone, which were colonies of France and Mm -hmm. Britain. Mm -hmm. And so they were doing everything they could to um, check him, which they did. I mean, it's kind of pitiful also that this great
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um, man of the back-to-Africa movement never got to go back to Africa himself. No, he
2: never did. No, that's interesting. That's Not
1: interesting. for want to yeah. try, but he was yeah. denied passports yeah. by the British and, exactly. and all the other people yeah. who, who controlled the show back then.
0: Yeah, so let's um, get uh, Garvey from... So he leaves London, goes back to Jamaica, and then he goes to New York. Why does he go there?
1: Well, I think he went there because he, as you said earlier, had this correspondence with Booker T. Washington. Mm-hmm and uh, he'd written to Washington and um, and misread the response because <laughs> Washington must have got lots of um, <laughs> people writing to him mm-hmm. uh, solicitous letters saying um, can you do me a favour or can you help right. in any shape or form and uh, Garvey wrote to him and, uh, and uh, Washington wrote back saying yes, if you're ever in the neighbourhood, do drop by mm-hmm. and Garvey took that as a, uh, an indication to pack his bags immediately <laughs> 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 He, did, he started packing immediately, but sadly um, Washington died before yeah. he get on the ship. But he was now uh, enamored of that idea. And uh, Harlem, as I'm sure you know, was this great yeah. Negro metropolis.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was uh, it was a place that, again, uh, ambitious black people wanted to go to mm-hmm. because it was uh, not quite um, at the start of the Harlem Renaissance, but uh, certainly the um, cornerstones were being Placed.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so you had people like Claude Mackay and mm-hmm. uh, later you had Langston Jews and you had Duke Ellington. And it became this great, exciting place where, I suppose rather like um, many, many migrants, you go to a place where you know your people are. Mm-hmm. So uh, Harlem at the time, it was said, uh, was uh, three fifths of the people there um, were migrants from the south, from the great northern migration. Um, One-fifth were indigenous people born in and around Manhattan, Mm -hmm. and one-fifth were Caribbean. So one-fifth of those 100,000 people were Caribbean. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so a lot of those people, uh, Garvey would have seen that there was this great magnet, and and Garvey was drawn there as well. And he was fortunate, I think, to, to come to Harlem at a time when this is unusually spring in, where people went out onto the streets late at night and, and there was this birth of this unusual uh, phenomenon which never been seen before, of the street orator. Mm-hmm. And so there were people like Asa Philip Randolph and right. Hubert Harrison and um, Garvey joined these great ebony orators, they called themselves, on mm-hmm. the step of Harlem. They put that soapbox boxes all their step letters and he would speak, so he was drawn there again uh, in the way that he was drawn to London because he thought this was the great uh, uh, possibility to improve himself, and you know he was going to be part of the American dream. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's astonishing to me that um, again um, the shorthand is that Garvey always wanted to be in Africa, but actually at the same time that he was advocating this back to African movement. He was applying for citizenship in America. Right. Um, uh, when it came to the the, uh, the Great Service Act in the First World War, uh, where men over 19 and under 30 had to sign up, Garvey didn't hesitate.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: he wasn't called upon because he had asthma and his lungs mm-hmm. weren't great. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was, uh, it was an honorable discharge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Garvey was enamored of America in the same way that many, many people around the world are today. And equally were then, Mm
0: -hmm. I think.
1: Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about
0: uh, his tour of the South Mm. that he undertakes after um, moving to New York. And I I found that part of the book very interesting because it really opened his eyes to a different kind of racism, this is something you point out, that he had ever experienced before. Because the way race broke, so to say, in Jamaica was very different than it was in the South.
1: Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. Um, well, he goes to the South in 1917 and he has this whirlwind tour of the South. He visits 38 states in America within six months and is heading south on the crossing the Mason-Dixon line but the majority of black people are going the other way mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and it's amazing to me that he's, uh, he's going there he doesn't know much about America and he's going there and he's got this um, what one, one would say in common parlance an uppity tongue he's not going to hold his tongue for anyone Yeah, um, and so he's probably going to get himself into trouble so he's very brave in a way or naive
2: mm-hmm.
1: but he's, he, as well as um, um, people fleeing he, he meets people who are entrepreneurs. So he, he gets to meet uh, Madam C.J. Walker, this, this great uh, beautician who, uh, by her own accounts, becomes a millionaire through selling hair-straining products. Mm-hmm. So he meets people who have great ambition like himself, and he meets um, Ida B. Wells and her husband, mm-hmm. the great um, anti-lyncher Ida B. Wells, mm-hmm. a great campaigner. But he sees a people who are rather tremulous. Yeah, He sees black people who are rather defeated, yeah. rather dwarfed, um, and in a way, you see, Garvey, as a Caribbean man, doesn't have that sense of himself, because yeah. although the majority of black people in the Caribbean are black, the majority of people in the Caribbean are black and, and poor, if they have chutzpah, if they have verb, if they have ambition, they can get on. Yeah. So it was said at the time um, that Garvey arrived in America that when a Caribbean person got ten cents above poverty, they would start a business. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, no. And, see.
1: and and they didn't have this idea that there were these limits to what uh, one could do in life.
3: Yeah, In yeah. the way
1: that the Black Americans thought that there was this ceiling, yeah, which they, which they couldn't puncture. Yeah. Also, I
0: think the kind of I, one thing that came out in the book was the was was the way in which Garvey saw the kind of everyday deference that black people were required to show to white people, including yeah. forms of address and this other uh, sort of stuff that, that we're familiar with as Americans, I mean, you could see it, but uh, he'd never seen anything like it before. All the yes and yes-ma'am stuff and the, and the bowing yeah, your he, eyes and all that. He just had never seen anything quite like that. And and he was amazed by it.
1: He was amazed by it, and I think people were amazed by his response to it. So, um, I mean, Garvey said some rather... Um, disturbing things, but they were disturbing times. So come the the East St. Louis riots, when Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, there a horrible moment in America's history, which we will not dwell on, but many black people were killed. Yeah. Yeah, The response of the NAACP was to lead a silent march um, down Fifth Avenue. Garth's response was to, in a kind of biblical fashion, call for an eye for an eye. Any time a black man is lynched in the South, Let's lynch a white man yeah. in Africa, or let's lynch a white man
2: yeah. in the
1: North. These are, these are things that weren't printed, uh, uh-huh. um, but he certainly was saying stuff like that. Yeah. And he was saying, um, fight fire, fire with fire. Yeah. Um, and that was a kind of Caribbean response, actually, because uh, they had not been subject to the kind of abuse that black Americans um Thought of as their lot.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And well, I, I mean, think people people were amazed by that kind of uh, language, by that kind of. I mean, it wasn't anyone. There were there were black men, men and women saying the same thing, but uh, yeah. lastly, they were meek in their response, yeah. and they'd been they have been schooled to to lower their eyes and and not yeah. to to um, irritate the yeah. white. And Garvey wasn't schooled in that way at all.
3: Yeah, and I think
0: it's interesting. I mean, I, I think you, you, you say that we shouldn't dwell on the East St. Louis riots and so on and so forth. And I, I, I guess you're right, but it's important to contextualize it. I mean, the, the things that Garvey was saying were in response to really kind of horrific acts of racial violence. I mean, things that, which, which we associate now with uh, genocide let's say, things that we can't really imagine that our ancestors ever really did. But in fact, yeah. they did, and he saw it, and he came from a perspective, and you well point this out in the book, um, in which that was completely foreign. He couldn't understand the way the black Americans were reacting to this. You know, yeah, he just and, and also what was
1: intriguing, intriguing to me was that, uh, especially amongst the brown elite who, who had done rather well for themselves, it was sort of rather ill-mannered to dwell on this.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: To, to um, you know, one was just sort of brush it to one side because uh, one didn't want to be tarnished by um, some of the problems that one's um, poorer brethren were suffering.
2: Right. Exactly. Um,
1: exactly. So there was that as, as well. I mean, it was it was a sh- it was a hugely um, damaging time, I think. But equally, it was a time that gave him his great momentum mm-hmm. because also it coincided with the entry of. Uh, America into the First World War Mm -hmm. in 1917. Um, And a great idea. um, Wilson said that, um, President Wilson said that america was going to make the world safe for democracy <laughs> and Garvey and his guys said uh, very well okay yeah make the world safe for democracy but how about making Georgia safe for the yeah. black man first
0: that was another one where I was
1: I just
0: that is that is extraordinarily clever that is a very clever <laughs> thing to say yes uh, yeah,
1: yeah. And, no, um, sure. and so when, when Du Bois um, and when Du Bois says in his famous editorial it's Let's put our differences to one side and, and fight shoulder to shoulder in his um, famous editorial in The Crisis uh, with the idea that there will be some reward for that. Uh-huh. When divorce is great, Gambit is proved to be wrong yeah. and Garvey is proved to be right. When Garvey and, and his um, followers and his um, cabinet are more or less saying yes, you can go off and fight for president and for mainstream America in the Great World War, but come the day when you return, things will return to normal. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And that largely was was what happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that gave Garvey a great boost also. People thought of him as this kind of prophet, Mm -hmm. a clear-eyed prophet who uh, wasn't going to kowtow to the administration um, and was going to tell people, what, what? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, this this really this context gives him, uh, you know, in other words, that the, the he had been saying similar things all along, but the context shifted in such a way that it, he, his voice began to be heard. And over the course of 1917 to 1918, the UNIA grows tremendously. Maybe you could speak a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, it did grow, and it grew because he was able to purchase um, a property, Liberty Hall, mm-hmm. and he would speak there regularly, two three times a week, and regularly two or 3,000 people would attend. Mm-hmm. This is a time when there's no great means of communication yeah. other than newspapers. Right. You know, There was no great radio or television mm-hmm. at the time. And his fame spread through people telling other people about what they'd heard. Mm-hmm. And sometimes his speeches um, were um, reported. But also, around about that time, he started his own newspaper, The Negro World.
2: Negro World, yeah.
1: Uh, which became this great um, tool for him.
2: Um,
1: and again, it's remarkable that Garvey was the man who was able to, I think, fire up people like uh, Madam C.J. Walker, mm-hmm. who was passing money under the table to Garvey in order to help him start this newspaper. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me that Garvey um, would take her money, but also Garvey prided himself on the fact that his newspaper would not place any adverts. For hair straining or skin lightening products. Interesting. Which is what um, yeah. black papers relied on, actually, yeah. actually, at the time for their revenue.
0: Right.
1: And so he's taken Madam CJ's Walker's money, but he wasn't going to take any of her adverts for hair straightening, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like his newspapers are, it's this great tool for him, and the word is spread through that. It's got a great circulation, and it's in it, circulation improves when he has um, um, talented people like Hubert. House and come on board and, and act as editors. Yeah. But ultimately, it was the huge idea to to found the Black Star Line.
2: Yes, exactly. That
1: was his, uh, his greatest success in terms of proselytizing his ideas.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And many many people came on board to the organisation when they imagined and saw the first flash of success of the Black Star Line. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a this is a, a, an idea to start a shipping line uh, for, for black people, by black people,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, trading with black people. Mm-hmm. So trading between America, uh, the Caribbean, and Africa. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: and at a time when there weren't that many ambitious black men running huge enterprises like that. I mean, Garvey, mm-hmm. I mean, this is not a matter of huge grand gesture, and so he goes from starting a restaurant and a laundrette to yeah, that's right. founding a shipping <laughs> line, which, <Yeah. laughs> which is quite a leap, isn't it? Uh,
0: no, it is, yeah. I was, but
1: I, I, but that, that idea, when it, when it worked, it, it galvanized people, uh-huh. and so his movement really, really took off then yeah. with that. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. But the when,
0: but the um, but the you know we're kind of running out of time a little bit. But I, I really want to get to the end of this in the sense that he, I guess, I want to say he, his 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 rise was extraordinarily quick, but his fall was also very quick.
1: Fall was also quick because uh, Darby, I think, had an idea, a wrong idea, that everybody would share his idea, share his ambition, share his ideals about furthering the cause of black people in America. And so, by founding these organizations, he had to rely on people who were like himself, people who had no great opportunity to excel. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who came into the organization were people like Garvey, who were Mm self-taught, who were ambitious fellows, and he thought that they shared this ambition of black uplift. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time, they were only lining their own pockets. So, for instance, uh, when it came to the Black Star Line, There weren't many black people out there with licenses to be captains of ships. Mm -hmm. And he came across this man, Richardson, who flashed his shining white teeth and came into the offices and said that he would act as a broker. And Garvey took to him immediately. But what he didn't realize was in American parlance, um, Richardson was... Was uh, working both sides of the street, mm-hmm. so that uh, when he came to buy the ship, he was not only acting on Garvey's behalf; he was getting a kickback from the venger.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: for the first ship that they bought, the Yarmouth, mm-hmm. it should have been bought for twenty-five thousand, they spent one hundred sixty-five thousand dollars on it, mm-hmm. and it was a rusty old leaking bucket. Yeah. And it spent, and they spent many more thousands of pounds making it seaworthy. Mm-hmm. And so this spectacular fall came about, I think, through the reliance on people like Richardson whom Garvey didn't realize were um, only going to be feathering in their own nest. Mm-hmm. Um, Garvey was a man who, as I said earlier, was a, a, a man of great contradictions, because on the one hand, he was able to articulate, the submerged thoughts of a repressed but awakening people. I mean, he really tapped into their thoughts and dreams and ambitions, and they took to him because he spoke so clearly, and sometimes people said he, he spoke as if, he was speaking their own thoughts. Mm-hmm. So that, on the one hand, he was a great communicator, but on the other hand, he had a, an amazing tin ear.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He wouldn't listen to anybody,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so he would make these mad ideas to to buy ships that weren't seaworthy, or to uh, to spend money on promoting an idea of expansion in Africa and, and purchasing land in Liberia in and around Monrovia. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Liberian regime, for instance, were never going to, actually going to give him that land. Mm-hmm. He didn't realise, he didn't recognise that uh, that there were some cynical people out there who were just going to take his money mm-hmm. and skin their teeth, as we say in Jamaican parlance. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, but equally, when it came to pass, and Garvey said famously many years later that he gave every black man, every black man and woman of importance in the Black star line the chance and every black person in since in seniority fleeced the black star line,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so he, he surrounds himself ultimately with people who took him for a ride, but also he equally surrounded himself with sixpence. Mm-hmm. and one of the things that he lacked was 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 someone whispering in his ear and counseling him to be cautious
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so his his uh, his fall when it came was the attacker, but equally his his fall was brought upon by himself, so mm-hmm. for instance. Uh, when it came to the court, when it came to the trial, he made a mistake, I believe, of defending himself. Mm -hmm. And they always say that the man who defends himself has a fool for a client. Mm -hmm. And Garvey, this great orator, this man who could sway thousands of people in his weekly meetings, somehow couldn't moderate his voice and his stance and his projection when it came to the courtroom. So these 12 jurors and the judge were rather irritated by his performance and in a way i think if he'd been a lot more modest and humble in his approach they might have seen that actually his foibles were those of a man who was sincere but unguarded in the in the way that he allowed Mm -hmm, criminals to come into the organization so he fell very spectacularly and it's rather pitiful how he ended up spending two years in jail before the Reported to uh, right, exactly. Jamaica.
3: Yeah,
0: exactly. No, I mean it's a it's a tragic story. It really is because he was a uh, a man of of incredible vision. Uh, mm-hmm. He was uh, a terrific orator. He was obviously a great thinker, and he mm-hmm. was, um, you know, at the right place in the right time. I think it's often the case with people who are sort of have have the idea that they uh, have a mission and then have a certain amount of success. That once things become routinized and they have to actually run an organization that they don't have yeah. the skills that are necessary to do it. Um, yeah. I've, I've seen this happen actually in my own life many times, <laughs> uh, to be honest with you. You know, I have yeah, great yeah. ideas, but when it comes to executing them, that's a, a very difficult uh, set of but,
1: skills. But Garvey, I, mean, I know we're running out of time, but Garvey's greatest um, tribute, um, the greatest tribute I could pay to Garvey is the fact that he was a fantastic promoter. hmm he really fired up people. And it's often said, and it can't be repeated enough, that Garvey was the first man who sold the idea of the black man to himself.
0: Yeah, it's true. That's absolutely true. And that
1: true. idea yeah. of no, self-regard yeah. and self-determination is one that I think is a kind of lasting um, tribute to the man. He, yeah. he really, At a time when the, the black man and woman was loathed and felt self-loathing,
3: uh-huh.
1: he he said, it's fine, it's perfectly fine. In fact, it's brilliant to be black. Yeah. And that's an amazing thing to have said you know, at, the, at the start of the 20th century. Do you think that's his greatest legacy? I do. I do, really, because um, actually some of the businesses weren't great and they failed. But the idea behind them, this idea that um, you could which beyond the remits of the life that was mapped out for you
2: uh-huh.
1: is, is a great idea. And I think yeah. um, people today are still inspired by that. Uh-huh. And I think we need more of well, Marcus Garvey. I, mean, I've, 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 yeah. I think that people like um, Barack Obama mm-hmm. uh, uh, owe much to Marcus Garvey mm-hmm. in that he, he, in a way, Barack Obama, Barack Obama is the epitome of Marcus Garvey. He's the great dream of Marcus Garvey come true.
0: No, it's quite true. It's quite true. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but it really is, it really is so. And I hope that your book, um, and I'm sure that it will, will go some way in actually, uh, you know, I'm a Russian historian, rehabilitating, so to say. People get rehabilitated <laughs> in Russian history, rehabilitating um, Marcus Garvey. I should also tell the listeners that there's a, a ton of material that we haven't, Covered here, one of the most fascinating parts, and I refuse to let you talk about it, um, but but I could talk about it for an hour with you is Garvey's personal life, um, mm-hmm. w- which is an amazing story in and of itself. I mean, he he gets he finally gets
1: married to this woman, and they
0: do get on, and then she's it's just the whole thing is is truly astounding.
1: Yeah, I mean, he he, he marries Amy Ashwood. Yeah, his, his great love of his life. As a teenager, she marries him. Yeah. Um, she uh, has has a great love for um, life and theatre and drink.
2: Yeah, and exactly.
1: Garb is rather estemious and is uh, rather shocked when when they go on their honeymoon and the guards at the border discover a bottle of whiskey yeah. in her yeah. briefcase.
0: Yeah, she's um, uh, a she, she she's a story in her own right. Absolutely, it's it's truly yeah. It really was. There were some eye popping things about their relationship. That, that, yeah. uh, also, just the way in which courtship worked at that time. I was—I think you do a very good job of handling that, of how how, how really delicate it, it was, and, and how conventions were, um, you know, very carefully observed, and propriety yeah. was extraordinarily important. And and he, you know, he really Garvey really is quite the gentleman in this way. Yeah. He's astoundingly genteel when it comes to his relationships with women. And
1: he's a great romantic man. Yeah, he he, he is. And she says that he loved in the grand way. Yeah. I mean, he proposed to her, and they were secretly engaged when she was 17. Yeah. And she wouldn't wear the ring. She'd make sure that she wouldn't wear the ring when her mother was around. Yeah. Yeah. Downing, and yeah. she talks about the fact that when she tried to break off in the uh, engagement, Garvey wrote a note saying he was going to throw himself into the siege.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, that, if, she, that, if that's not romantic, I don't know what is.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, and what, what's lovely to, for me is that uh, she, even though they were separated after three months of marriage. She never accepted that they were right. no longer man and wife. It was exactly. all through her adult life, up until yeah. his death. That they were married.
0: The yeah, she insisted they were married. Yeah, right. Yeah,
3: were,
1: yeah. And there's this one wonderful, I must tell you, there's one wonderful moment where in 1939 or thereabouts, they're both in London now, and his health is failing, and and they they meet in a tea room in Lyons, a Lyons tea room in London, and they all the bitterness that they've felt towards each other drops away. Uh-huh. And later on in that af- that afternoon, she is walking through Hyde Park, Speaker's Corner, where these great speakers converge. And Garvey is on a soapbox, and he's trying to um, summon all of his great skills that he's known for and, and give a speech, but he can't quite do it. He's rather defeated, and he doesn't have the same fiery intent that he had. Uh-huh. Um, as a young man and she sees him and he sees her and he tries to rouse himself one last time uh-huh. but can't quite do it. And she That's scuffles away yeah. with tears running That's down um, her
0: cheeks. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm not nearly as romantic as Marcus Garvey. I often tell my wife that uh, <laughs> when I'm upset that I'm gonna throw myself off a footstool. That's
3: about as far as I'm gonna go.
0: <laughs> That's about it. You know, I not really yeah, it doesn't matter that much You know, we've taken up a huge amount of your time and I know it's late there. Um, but I wanted to ask you one final question. What are you working on now, Colin?
1: Well uh, I'm a very lucky fellow. Um towards the end of my research for Negro with a Hat I came across a quote. Uh, and the quote is this. We are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery because whilst others might free the body none but ourselves can free the mind. Free the
3: mi- yeah okay I recognize now, who said
1: that. that
0: yeah no well I don't I I don't I I know who sung it I don't know who said it.
1: Okay. So you know it was sung by, by Robert Nestor Marley, Bob yes. Marley. No, yes, everyone knows that song, yes. But the it Redemption was song, actually yes. spoken in 1937 by a man called Marcus Mazaya Garvey. Is that right? In Menelik Hall, Nova Scotia, 1937. Who knew? And so my next book is going to follow on from this book, and it's going to be a group biography of the original whalers, the original Wow. Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, and Bunny Whaler. But whereas there have been many, many books about Bob Marley, the other two characters, the wonderful characters, Peter Tosh Tosh, and Bunny Whaler, have been Uh rather marginalized. Uh And my uh, idea is to bring them back to the fore, bring them to the, the center stage, because they were together for 11 years before they split. And they split right at the time when the group was going to become an international band. Yeah. And so I'm going to look at them as three archetypal fellows and 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 think about why only one was elevated at the expense of the others. And my model for this has been a, a marvelous book by David Remnick. He wrote a book um, ostensibly about Muhammad Ali, king of the world. Uh-huh. But actually, it's about three seminal black men, uh, Muhammad Ali, Sonny Liston, Floyd Patterson, yeah. three different types of uh, emerging black man, and who is the one that one should look upon as a a role model. And equally, my three guys, Peter Tosh, Bonnie Marley, Peter Tosh, Bonnie, Whaler, and Bob Uh Marley, three archetypal fellows, each one of them could have been the one. Uh, So you have the accommodator, simply the accommodator, but he wasn't obviously just that Bob Marley who's going to do the thing that you need to do in order to become the international star. You have the militant guy, Peter Tosh, who's not going to deal with Babylon, as we say, uh, not going to deal with uh, mainstream culture. Not going to deal with any kind of commercialism. And then we have uh, Bunny Whaler, who doesn't want to tour. He's just going to feed his chicken and plant his crops. Right. So there you are. Three archetypes, and only one of them can be king. That's, that's a, the book. That's a,
0: fan, that's a fan, just a fantastic book. I, just, I mean, it's a terrific project. I, I'm envious. I really am.
1: I know. Uh, no, I mean, because I've sold the idea to uh, my English publishers, Jonathan Cape, and. Uh, in America, it's going to be published by uh, Penguin Press USA.
0: Is that right? Well, that's a terrific publisher. That's really great. Well, I congratulate you on your, all your success. And when the book comes out, um, I, if you'll let me, if you, then, <laughs> I would love to interview you about it. That would be great. I, I mean, I can, I, I might even, I might even get my guitar and sing Redemption Song on the air or something horrible like that. And no, I won't, I won't. do That so, That would
1: be fantastic. I'd, I'd love to appear on your show again. I have really enjoyed our chat. Well, thank and you
0: the, very I, much. Yeah, we really, you know, I, we really appreciated having you. Great stuff. Good, All right. Good. Thank good. you All right. Well, we, this, is, this has been an interview with uh, Colin Grant, whose book Negro with a Hat, The Rise and Fall of Marcus Garvey. I have read with great pleasure, and uh, I've enjoyed talking to him very much. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you very much. All Thanks right. For having okay. Me. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Colin Grant, author of Negro with a Hat, The Rise and Fall of Marcus Garvey, just released from Oxford University Press. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Talk to you next week.